And now will you turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Our sermon text today will be verses 9 to 14 of Deuteronomy 4. After we read this passage, we'll turn to the Gospel according to John, the 14th chapter, and read the first 15 verses of John chapter 14. But our concentration is on the book of Deuteronomy that we've been working our way through. We're in chapter 4. We will soon be in chapter 4, in which we have, of course, the second giving of God's law, the Ten Commandments. Chapter 4, and really all that has gone before in terms of Moses spelling out to Israel their own recent history of deliverance and uh, their passage through the, the howling wilderness for 40 years. All of that is the first four chapters of Deuteronomy. Moses preaching to them on the plain of Moab, east of the Jordan River, right on the threshold of the conquest, going into the land. So what we have in chapter 4 is Moses preaching to the people. At verse 9, we read this. He says, by the Spirit of God, only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen. And they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. The day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess it. And now to the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter. It is the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed. His one last meeting at the table, the Passover table with his disciples. And he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have laid out to us words of grace and power, and you have shown us the way to your throne of grace, the way that sinners may approach you through him who is our substitute, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. So we pray that you would show us his glory in the opening of your word today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. To say that the history of the Jewish people for the last 3,000 years falls short of the glorious heritage that God entrusted to such men as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and King David to assert that that nation, as a nation, fell short of those covenant blessings has to be regarded as one of the great understatements of recorded history. Because in God's providence, to this very day, their history has been very largely shaped by disaster, 
dispersion, derision, war, and ruin. Jewish history really is a trail of tears. It's an absolute tragedy, an ongoing tragedy that so much back in the days of old was promised to this highly privileged people and so little delivered. And yet, with respect to those covenant promises God made to the seed of Abraham and to the royal house of David, the Holy Spirit poses this question in Paul's epistle to the Romans. He says, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man a liar. God is absolutely true to every promise he makes, every one of them. But as we discover in this wonderful book of Deuteronomy, those covenant promises of unimaginable national blessing, promises made first at Sinai and then repeated here on the plains of Moab to the old covenant nation of Israel, those promises were very largely conditional promises, weren't they? If you'll remember what your own eyes have seen, if you'll hear and heed these things, if you'll make them known to your children and the coming generations and to the nations around you, if, 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 then, here's the outpouring of heavenly blessings you can expect. The Holy Spirit in the book of Deuteronomy reminds us again and again and again of that one great condition under which the Lord delights to pour out his covenant blessings. It's the condition of simple, loving obedience. Do what he says. Why will you die, O Israel? Obey the Lord and live. Obey him and be blessed. That was the condition. Fourteen centuries after Moses, our Lord Jesus Christ famously told those Galilean Jews gathered to hear him on the hill outside Capernaum in what has come to be called the Sermon on the Mount. He says to them, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty? It's good for nothing anymore, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? Speaking to these rustic, Galilean Jews on that hill or mountain. 
They'd gathered to listen to Jesus that day. In what respect could Jesus call them the salt of the earth and the light of the world? That's a rather high calling for rustic Galileans. And for that matter, how does anyone make such a profoundly positive difference in his own social environment as salt does for the food it seasons? Or as light does for whatever it illuminates? How do you and I make a positive difference in the social order and the lives of men? Well, the essential difference between the church and the lost world out of which we've been called, the thing that makes us distinctive is the law reigning in our hearts and by which we're governed. What sets us apart from the world ethically in terms of our daily living certainly isn't our commonly shared humanity with all the rest of men. That's our lowest common denominator. What sets God's people apart as a distinctive people, a transformed winsome, attractive people who naturally draw others into the kingdom of God. It's certainly not the natural law to which all men naturally conform. We no longer live in a way that's shaped or dictated by what everyone else is doing. Thinking and acting just like the world out there actually hides the glorious city of God from those who are still trying to find it. For the salt of the earth to live their own way and not by the higher standard of God's way is to become unsalty. It's to become tasteless. It's to become useless. Jesus himself says, good for nothing. Good for nothing. Except to be trampled underfoot by men. And the nominal Christians who think that way and act that way, disregarding God's law, they risk being trampled underfoot with all the rest of the lost world. God's law sets his own people who are redeemed by grace. God's law sets us above that mindset sets us apart from that lowest common denominator ethic of the unredeemed. This genuine yearning to live under God's law is, in a practical sense, what makes us useful in his kingdom. An asset to the kingdom in Christ and not a liability. It's the distinctive mark of a life well-lived. It's the seal of his redeeming grace at work in us. And it's beautiful in its simplicity. Trust and obey. In his 
sovereign plan to redeem fallen humanity, a plan unfolding throughout the whole span of human history. God determined long ages ago to set Israel apart as a holy nation, didn't he? A nation plainly and obviously distinctive from all the other nations of the world. This nation, in fact, this nation of Israel, was designed to serve the world, to serve the world as a kingdom of priests. A kingdom consecrated for the purpose of teaching and demonstrating to all the peoples of the world by her own societal example, the kingdom of God. Do you want to know God's blessing down there in the land of Egypt? Do you want to live securely and enjoy prosperity over there in Syria and Babylon and Persia and the islands of the Mediterranean? Do you want to live in societies that practice true social justice? Then look at us. Consider the great and glorious things the one living and true God is doing here among us in Israel. That was her specific charge as a nation. That was her divine commission. So Israel's missionary task internationally was to serve as kind of a scale model of the rule and reign of the living God for all the nations of the world to see and to be drawn to and to examine and then to bring their findings home with them and ultimately to emulate them within their own national borders to make the law of God their own law. Because as the 47th Psalm and so many other Psalms remind us, God is king of all the earth. And in all the earth, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is our God? Whenever we call on him. What great nation is there that has such an obviously superior code of social justice and law and order? So Israel's divine commission as a nation was to remember and teach and demonstrate God's law to the nation. Now, in order to facilitate this commission that the nation had, in order to facilitate it, God providentially placed the Old Testament borders of Israel's inheritance in this central strategic location among the great nations and empires of the world. Israel wasn't intended or even permitted just to do her own thing off in some remote corner of the world. Because the nations had to come to her. They had to see her in her natural habitat under the law of God. They had to live among her for a while. They had to do business with her. And when I say they had to, I really mean they had to. 
There was no other way. Because to the immediate west of Israel lay what? The Mediterranean Sea. And to the nearly immediate east, there lay the barren wilderness of the vast Arabian desert. Which meant that the main land route, civilization's main land route, of all commercial and diplomatic traffic of that ancient world, funneled down through this narrow geographical bottleneck of Israel. They had to come this way. And to those heathen nations that were passing through, Israel's God-given mission was to serve as this living example, this scale model of an ordered civic and social life lived under the glorious kingdom of God. under the reign of God, under the commandments of God, which had inspired the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ on the pages of the New Testament, he still describes that law as holy and righteous and good. That was God's intent from the very beginning, as we saw last time up in verses 6 to 8. Observing this law, this holy law that sets you, Israel, apart from all the other nations, God through Moses says, that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? The blessing of God upon Israel or upon any nation has always been tied inextricably to its obedience to his revealed law. His commandments and statutes are the word of our one and only covenanted king, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now I really need to emphasize this because there are teachers out there today teaching and there are preachers preaching that we need to make a sharp moral distinction between the Old Testament law of Moses and the New Testament gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they downplay or even dismiss the one in order, they think, to highlight the other. But dear ones, God, the immutable God, doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. And the fact is that all humanity ultimately has but one rightful king who governs all nations by his one published moral law, these commandments that are holy and righteous and good. 
The Ten Commandments aren't just for Old Testament Israel. They're for us. The moral law of God summarized for us in those Ten Commandments, it is even written on the human heart. Think about it. It is. Read Romans chapter 1. His law is for all people not to suppress in unrighteousness, but to obey. But actually doing so, actually having a mind, that is, to keep the law in the strength that God supplies, that resolve is what sets the church, the Israel of God, according to Paul in Galatians 6.16, that's what sets the Israel of God apart from the heathen nations of the world. It gives our people, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this distinctive moral flavor. That's the outward demonstrating proof that by grace, by grace alone, we no longer walk in darkness like the Gentiles do. All of which is to say, friends, all of which is to say that when put into daily practice as originally intended, This biblical ethic, summarized for us in the Ten Commandments, suggests to the world out there the very image and fragrance of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. To keep God's holy law by the power of his indwelling spirit is to be like Christ. You cannot be like Christ while you're disregarding or diminishing God's law. It's like trying to draw a perfectly square circle. Can't be done. This uniquely great man among men, our Lord Jesus Christ, kept this holy law. Completely, he did. Totally, he did. Every jot and tittle of it, in his every thought, word, and deed, without interruption, from the heart, from childhood on, he kept it all. Which is how this man alone, this unblemished Lamb of God, is qualified and competent in the eyes of God to be your Savior. And my Savior. And so the church's faithful resolve to honor and imitate him by keeping it by the might and power of the Holy Spirit, this dim but growing resolution on our part, demonstrates us in Christ to be distinctly his Love for his law is your shibboleth, your identifying mark of citizenship. Law-keeping for the Christian 
who is saved by grace. It's the pierced ear of that permanent slave who loves his own master and wife and children. Shaping our lives by God's law makes you and makes us together distinctive. And didn't our only dread sovereign, the living and true God incarnate, on the night in which he was betrayed, say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In the flesh, the very God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came as our king. And he came not to erase Old Testament law, but to breathe into it again the true and proper spirit of cheerfulness and love, that beating heart of the law that rabbinical Judaism had lost altogether. The formalism. This law that we're about to consider in the coming weeks first shows us then the spotless character of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ better, if you want to know him as well as he can be known until the day we meet him face to face, then, beloved, immerse yourselves in the law to which he lovingly conformed his own thinking and life. That might be called the first purpose of the law, to show us Christ. Then too, as humanity's one true moral straight edge, this law first given at Sinai and then repeated again here, east of the Jordan on the plains of Moab, it shows us by means of stark comparison our own sins. The law shows us our own sins. Because after all, what is sin? So those of you who have been here in our catechism class know very well the answer to that question. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So it shows us our sin. That's a second purpose for which God gave his law. A third purpose is this. The law of God provides us with that unique, true moral compass that you may have heard bandied about in the political rhetoric of our day. You've heard the phrase, Moral compass. This candidate lacks a moral compass. That politician lacks a moral compass. God's law authoritatively directs our present and future steps, not only as the church or as individual Christians, but even as human societies. His law is our practical guide for living. Of course, all these perfections of God's law that I've been describing, this law first spoken audibly to all Israel in the flaming gloom 
and darkness of Mount Sinai, then committed to stone tablets that were written with the very finger of God. These features of the law don't exhaust the substance of today's text. Because our text begins with a warning, doesn't it? God's own warning to us through his servant Moses. It begins in verse 9, at least in our pew Bibles. It begins with the word, only. Which implies, this is important. Pay attention, don't let yourself get lost in the details. This law may indeed show us the character of Christ. It may serve humanity as our one true moral straight edge. It may offer a guide for daily living in human society. It may serve all these outward purposes, but the Christian life isn't lived just out here at arm's length or whatever distance you read your Bible. If Christianity were a matter merely of memorizing and reciting the right words or other pro forma achievement, then we might expect the best Christians to be coming out of the most rigorous institutions of higher learning. But they're not. God's law that I've spent all this time talking to you about, God's law has to begin taking its rightful place not merely within our heads, but within our heart and soul, within our will and volition. Only give heed to yourself, says Moses, and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Nearly 40 years earlier, God's mysterious appearance, if you can call it that, because they saw no form, only heard a voice, but his mysterious appearance in the fire and thick gloom at Sinai had absolutely terrified the people. You remember it, don't you? Read it in Exodus 20. That appearance, that theophany, shook the people of Israel to the core And by doing so, it made this indelible indelible impression on everyone who witnessed it. We too must let God's law shake us and unmake us and then by grace remake us according to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, beloved, the world doesn't need another 35-volume set of commentaries on the law of God. The scribes and Pharisees in their day did all that routine academic work, and they did it very well, but that's where it ended with the publication of yet another rabbinical commentary built upon the rabbinical commentaries 
that were built upon the rabbinical commentaries of the rabbis who went before them. But all that dry, dusty, increasingly irrelevant commentary that calcified over time into these fixed rabbinical traditions, all that never impacted the direction of the Roman Empire, did it? It never won them over to the glorious kingdom of God, did it? Making that positive impact on human civilization would be the irresistibly powerful ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, speaking through David in the 40th Psalm, says, Behold, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O Lord. Thy law is within my heart. Dear ones, if you remember nothing else today, remember this. It is his faithful, unswerving discharge of God's holy law Christ's discharge of God's holy law, not our feeble, failing, on-again, off-again efforts, his obedience that fully satisfies the crushing debt that every sin arose to the holiness of God. If fallen men are ever to be saved from the coming wrath, then Christ alone has the credentials to save. He, he alone, must become your Savior. Nevertheless, let us who wish to make a positive impact for Christ on our society first, remember, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, to lay up this holy standard within our own hearts. Lay it up in your own hearts, not as just one more thing to remember, but lay it up in your hearts as Christ did in his, not as one more thing, but as the only thing, our only infallible rule for faith and life. Amen.